Hello and welcome back to the North Pod. I'm one of your co-hosts, Owen Dorr. With me as always is Duncan Kemp. We're talking all things well-being today and we have been very fortunate to snag the wonderful Ramai Santhropala, who is not only a GSTT anaesthetic consultant, but is an RCOA council member who is very interested in well-being and has recently created the RCOA Wellbeing Hub which we will get on to later. We have a lot of references in the bio, so please go and have a look at these and share these with your colleagues. We do talk about some difficult personal and professional circumstances that anaesthesia can sometimes put you in. So if you're not feeling 100%, maybe pick up this podcast when you're feeling a bit more recharged. A note from the edit room, due to the fact that we record on the top floor of the RCOA, there is some background noise I've been unable to get out in the edit. I promise Duncan, Ramai and myself were not slamming doors during recordings. Welcome back to the NovPods, hosted by Anesthesia and Air, brought to you in association with the Royal College of Anaesthetists. I'm your co-host, Owen Dorr. I'm an anaesthetic reg in Thames Valley. I'm Duncan Kemp. I'm another one of your co-hosts, and I'm an anaesthetic registrar in North Central London. So today we're very lucky to have Ramai, who's in charge of wellbeing for the college. I think that's the official title, isn't it? (laughs) Something like that. Something like that. Yeah, wellbeing lead for council. And it's probably one of our most important talks that we're going to have on the NovPod is going through how you define well-being, the challenges that might present themselves for you during your training, what you can do to look after yourself, and then some signposting for where you can get some extra support. Rowan, do you have any particular memories, challenges, lessons learned from novice period? So I went from F2 to CT1 ACCS and I'd worked on a hemoncology ward previously. So mm. you can imagine what the cannulations yeah. were like. I remember for the first two weeks just not being able to do very well with my cannulation. I always find it really fascinating, as you probably know, I like to think outside the box. You have to be quite self-reflective and what is actually the challenge here? And sometimes it's environmental, it's the context, isn't it? It's not your actual individual capability. Clearly, all of us can do cannulas at that stage. So it's something generally environmental so it's addressing that it reads that if you haven't done it right the first time you failed in some way everyone fails procedures building that mental resilience to be like it's okay it took me a long time as a novice to realize that failing a cannula wasn't the end of the world Absolutely. The novice period, it's a really interesting period, isn't it? You may or may not have had exposure to anaesthesia in any significant amount before. And we have to remember what we do is actually really unique. We're in the operating theatres, we're in pre-operative space and post-operative space. That uniqueness might mean that there's a lot to learn and a lot of familiarity. And we all know the impact of situational awareness of your environment. There's a lot to take in in that novice period. And I think it's really important as a novice to remember that. And remember what we do is quite unique. It's quite bespoke. It's exciting. And we're really lucky as a specialty that we're generally kind, compassionate, supportive. You've got a lot of support around you, but don't be too hard on yourself. What you're doing is challenging as well. There's a lot going on and... Most of us anaesthetists like to get things right first time. 
there is a lot of capacity to be overwhelmed in many, many senses during your novice period. And that's completely okay. Everyone's been there. Definitely taking the picture as a whole rather than as an individual procedure. That's a big challenge I found. And I think particularly when you're starting to fly a little bit after your first few weeks and you're getting used to doing airway stuff to then suddenly feel like you're taking a step back where you've gotten to a certain point and then you start having difficulty with some procedures, not necessarily your fault in any way, shape or form, but it's part of the learning curve. And then suddenly you feel like, oh no, it's all going wrong. Where, what am I doing? All my peers are better than me. When actually chances are everyone's having the similar thing, albeit yeah. with a different procedure. A different procedure, a different aspects. I mean, there's a lot to learn intellectually in that time. Actually, it's a multifaceted period. And you're also kind of learning to work with colleagues in a very different environment as yeah. well. So it's always understanding that that is a complex time, but it's also really exciting. Hopefully yeah. everyone will eventually look back and think that was a really great time. Yeah. Another uniqueness is you will not have that one-to-one supervision in many specialties. It's one of the reasons that attracted me to anesthesia. It is the true apprenticeship. Which is something that looking at training surveys that is very unique and very valued to the anesthetics. Speaking of that level of support and also mentioning some of the challenges that we've just brought up, a word that's banned to the round that in a way has started to lose its meaning is well-being. If we're to advise people on how to take their careers forward, they need to know how to optimise themselves. And one of those is looking after their well-being. So how do you define well-being? Well-being has been defined in so many different ways. There's a number of definitions. I actually particularly like the one that I recently asked ChatGPT. That is showing you're thinking outside the box. So it says well-being refers to the overall state of healthy, happy and contentness in various aspects of life and it encompasses your physical, your mental and your emotional well-being as well as the quality of your social connections and overall satisfaction of life. It's multifaceted. Perhaps the part that challenges me and is probably not as relatable to anaesthesia is your individual ability to cope with stress and adversity. Now, why I quite like this definition is because it really embraces that it's holistic. For many people, we probably have some aspects of physical, mental, emotional, even kind of nutrition well-being sorted. But there's always one aspect that probably you're challenged with or you're still working on. And I think it's really important to understand that it is multifaceted and several things come together. That directly relates to our individual well-being. And I think we talk a lot about well-being at work, and that's the focus of this podcast, rightly. But we also have to remember that actually what you do outside work impacts your well-being at work and vice versa what you do in work impacts your life outside work now the bit that does challenge me is the ability to cope with stress and adversity and I think one of the things that I'm a really firm advocate of is that if we keep mentioning the resilience model or the individual resilience model it is the wrong message particularly Mm, in the professional context this is not about individual resilience this is about setting up a system so setting up conditions around you so that you can thrive naturally at work it's not about making you the most robust version of yourself to survive work if that makes Mm. sense i really like that chat gpt definition it reflects what i define as well-being which is the optimization of your energy your performance and your mental health in order to do that 
that might include doing things that only make a 5 or 10% difference, but then that's you being able to go and perform as a doctor in a 5 to 10% better capacity. I also completely agree with that individual resilience. You keep getting told you just need to go out and be more resilient. It just means nothing. Evidence has shown that resilience is teams-based and therefore thinking about how you can be part of a culture or maybe create your own peer support network could help you through the novice period as well. I want to come in on that for obviously personal experience reasons, but also because I think it's important. I've looked a lot into the link between inclusivity and well-being. And I think one of the fundamental tenets that comes out is that sense of belonging. Once you feel you belong, once you feel safe in that environment, naturally, you're more likely to thrive. That's why I struggled with when I started off as a novice anaesthetist was I came from ACCS where I'd been an AMU and ED and I felt like a valued member of a team. And then I went to not being able to be looking after a patient by myself. So it felt like my sense of value had decreased, which did affect my well-being. But then as I developed through my novice period and started talking to my peers, I realised that it wasn't just me and this was part of the journey I had to go on. What you've exemplified really well is that peer-to-peer support is really important. So when you start as a novice, hunt out who your other novice colleagues are but also have some level of mentorship. A lot of kind of senior colleagues will be so ready to help you. And obviously you'll have your educational supervisors and your college tutors. And I can't hone this enough. Anesthesia is such a supportive specialty. And most of us want to see people do their very best. Whether you perceive it or not, the support is there around you. So really optimise that. Just realise that you're definitely not alone. And all of us have had to go through the novice period. Exactly. You know, I always say to novices, it's parallel to a driving licence. And I know that seems like such a boring comparison, but no one's going to let you behind the car without a certain amount of training. Obviously, patient safety is paramount. And the novice period is a real honing period so that you're safe for independent practices, obviously within the remit of what's appropriate for your seniority again what other specialty do you get three months where you get to really hone your techniques and build those foundations that's such an opportunity interesting what you said about the peer support as well this thing that naturally forms around you even if you don't realize it i think back to my novice period and within two weeks there were ct2 shos coming checking in on me there were registrars from st3 to st7 There were staff grade doctors, there were multiple consultants who would always come and say, oh, hello, how are you getting on? You know, and even if you're after your novice period, relieving someone for a break or trying to do a case on your own, people would always check in on you and make sure you're doing okay. And then you realise that these people had the same people above them who were like, oh, yeah, well, this person was my registrar when I was an SHO and now they're a consultant and this pattern keeps going up as you go up the grades, which is quite nice. It almost forms like an extended family tree almost. I think on that peer support, you can have a passive and active role in it. Passive is that you sit there and realise that people are seeing you not as a doctor, but as a learner and that you're there to grow and that they're telling you different techniques. That's not a direct criticism on your ability as a doctor. You're a learner where you grow throughout your novice experience. And that mindset shift helped me. And the other thing is about the active part is that you can go and form these peer support networks by just making sure you create a peer support group where you sometimes will go and meet up for a coffee once every week or once every two weeks. So there are ways that you can go and formulate that for yourself. I really like the driving license analogy. Does that mean that when you CCT for consultant, is that F1 level driving? 
if we carry that analogy on further. It's so you're definitely not always going faster or at super speed as per F1 drivers, <laughs> but I think you know you're just more experienced, perceptive, and able to manage different situations. We'll call it rally car driving <laughs> with ODP as a co-pilot. Yeah. Keeping on the, I don't know why we've got down the driving analogy now, but you can see further down the road than someone with less experience, can't yes. you? And I think because you've been done in the tour of the circuits, you know where the, the sharp bends are coming and what to watch out for. And we're going to go into this, I think, a bit later, but it's also to remember that anesthesia is vast and it can be clinically very challenging with outcomes and situations that you may not have faced before. So having a strategy for that and how you cope with that and also really recognising that is part of our specialty too. Depending where you've come from, but there's also a heavy tie-in with intensive care. But if you're coming into anaesthetics having not had an experience of that, then you can be thrown into situations which are very extreme and very challenging under high pressure where you may not have had to deal with this before and then you are suddenly seen as the anaesthetist as the potential saviour of the situation even if nothing will change the outcome and I think that's a very difficult thing to comprehend if you've not and so it is important to have those senior people around you to rally around and make sure you debrief about these situations and don't just bottle it up and think oh well this must be normal in my training I think that's a really big challenge in anaesthetics where you are dealing with things like peri-arrests cardiac arrests, deaths. For me, one of the trickiest things was dealing with sick children, having never done a paediatric job, having done a lot of adult intensive care, but never paediatric. Those situations, it's very important to talk to people above you and around you and have debriefs, if that helps. How do you feel that as you've come through your anaesthetic training, what you've learned work to deal with these difficult situations in peri-arrests or in arrests themselves? I think the first thing is to understand that perspective, that these are extremely challenging situations. I come from a context of coming from a non-medical family, and often that gives me perspective. If I was to explain what we were facing to a non-medical person, it really hones how unusual and challenging these situations are. So I think it's first of all to have that perspective. The other aspect is to always understand that everyone individually is likely doing their best and to have that assumption in that situation that everyone's there for the same goal. They're all there for the patient or patients and to really take a step back and again, you know, look at things like human factors, look at where things potentially could have been improved, but perhaps without apportioning kind of direct blame per se because to realize that actually most of these situations are multifactorial and we all know the importance of human factors in that particularly in highly stressful emergency situations one thing i really found is again it comes down to peer support you've got to know who the people around you who are going to be there for you in that situation and again the context is important so in some ways that needs to be fellow anesthetic colleagues because only they really get what you go through in those situations understanding where your mentorship is going to come from that where your support is going to come from that having the discussions and I think close to the time as well because it stops your mind going over the event again and again and as to what you as an individual could have done better and I'm not to say that of course all of us can improve in those situations there's always learning points 
But I think it's also to be able to take that step back and say, you know, actually, if that same patient came in, is there anything different that I could have done or anything different the team could have done? And in some cases, actually, the answer's no, which mm. is really unfortunate. And it's hard to swallow that, isn't it? You know, just last week, I was having a discussion with a colleague who'd had a death in the table just the day before. Again, we just had a conversation over coffee and there's nothing that could have been done differently. It was just a very unfortunate situation. And that's something that sometimes we find it really hard to accept that. There's a few aspects there. And I definitely am an enthusiast of debriefs. So I definitely think that brings some perspective, but also brings the team to because you have to remember everyone's affected by these situations so your ODP's affected the nursing staff affected and everyone's probably going individually thinking through things and thinking what they could have individually done differently so bringing that team together I think is really important and also I think ultimately it actually engenders camaraderie as difficult those situations are and I think we really saw that during the pandemic Mm. particularly the first surge I never felt closer to my colleagues on the reflection of that, I completely agree that debriefs are really important and it goes back to what we were saying earlier, that resilience is team-based and if as you as a team can go through and either learn or be compassionate together and with each other, that can really help that healing process. It can also help pick out things where either death on the table around a major bank holiday where we were part of a debrief and someone had blamed themselves for something that had nothing to do with the outcome and we're able to address that and reassure that person. You don't know how tough someone is having it. The other thing it does is is able to give out a message to people and to your team that you need to go and take five. I don't mean five literal minutes. I mean like five is an indeterminate amount of time so that you can go and look after basic human needs because you've probably been in that situation for a while. So make sure you, you, as simple as it is, go to the toilet, get something to eat, get something to drink and just sit down and take a breather so that you can then go and be optimised for your next patient because... It might have happened at 4am, but something might be happening at 5 and giving yourself that kindness and your team that kindness to be able to recharge and reload. Also, just to come back to that, it's really important to know what you need in that situation and that self-awareness is important, but also realise like small acts of kindness go a long way in those situations. I'm thinking back to one particular situation where I had an anaphylaxis on the table, completely unpredictable complete cardiovascular collapse luckily we got the patient back and one of the kindest memories I still remember was when I taking the patient up to intensive care and our my intensivist colleagues who thankfully I have a great relationship with at Guys and St Thomas's they actually took the notes off me took me into the coffee room gave me a cup of tea and my phone and said for the next 15 minutes your job is to be here you know I just look back and I just think that was brilliant and the Mm. next day they texted me and said we've successfully extubated and told them about the brilliant anaesthetist who looked after their care a lot of well-being is actually looking out for each other and looking out for those early signs just being really supportive with very small things to say essentially I've got you funny you mentioned about the pandemic and I found that we were doing suddenly this very intense shift patterns of you know four long days or four nights in a row then you're off try and cut off of be able to leave work at work was a big challenge like you said you could see where that was leading months and months of that you're going to get burnt out so I found one thing was straight after handover I would grab my team and say right I've ordered some food we're going to have a post handover 
handover of all the things we've seen these last few days. And then we'd go afterwards having vented or just even talked about bizarre things, sad things, interesting things we'd seen. And then we could go and it was kind of like a breath of fresh air once we left the hospital that you could actually go and live outside of work yeah. before you came back. And I think that's really important. I mean, it's okay to feel emotionally burdened by that, but it's how you respond to that, how you actually do exactly what you've said. Speak to colleagues who understand the context. It is interesting. It's all those subtleties, isn't it? that we really have to take account for. I call it work-life integration because I think those around you have to understand the complexities and the uniqueness and the challenges of what you do within work. I think it's really hard, actually, to completely separate that. It is a real challenge of insight. I think particularly when you're in the run of several very busy shifts to take that step back and go, oh, actually, that wasn't normal what we experienced there's a power in verbalizing thoughts, feelings, even just recounting events. So it's not all bottled up and internalized. I had a, an incident with my wife, who's not a medic, last year where I had a run of busy on calls. And one of the cases was very sad. It was a child who'd had an amputation for the sarcoma. Obviously, didn't think about it at the time. And then a few days after sitting with my wife, I was like, you know, actually, work was quite tough this week because of this case. She was flabbergasted. It's like, why haven't you talked about this before? And I said, well, uh, at least I've realised I've had that insight to talk about it now. It's one of those things that can easily get brushed under the carpet. It's definitely okay to not be okay because we are human doing superhuman stuff. That's the really important part is not to completely internalise those events and just to talk and just to realise that all of us have days when we're not okay. And it's learning that ability to recognise that in yourself, also having the scope to look out for colleagues and look out for those early signs as well. Absolutely. As you said, we are humans doing extraordinary things, not extraordinary humans doing extraordinary things. That's very important. And doing that low-level discussion is important day-to-day, but sometimes you actually need a little bit of extra support. And what we will do is signpost you to that later so i think we've gone through some of the challenges of the novice period and this isn't exhaustive that you're learning new things every day that's tiring you can take a while to feel that you're a valued member of the anesthetics team and you can see some very difficult scenarios taking a step back what do you think the challenges of being an anaesthetist are there's two separate points here, I guess. There's challenges of anaesthetic training yeah. and there's challenges of being an anaesthetic consultant because yeah. the training's got some specific challenges with it, be it being rotational, being someone who has to take some pretty tricky exams. Yeah. In the world of Harry Potter, I would describe them as nasty, exhausting wizarding tests. <laughs> and then the other one of just trying to find your feet whilst you're doing all call shifts, which can be pretty tiring. So yeah. just as the first point, do you have any reflections on what we just touched on there as the challenges of anaesthetics training? I think, like you said, you have to learn an awful lot amount and in very varied situations. So you might be switching from paediatrics to cardiac to some nuance of adult anesthesia. And I don't want to sound like someone who's eternally optimistic. I think I count myself as a pragmatic optimist, but wow, isn't that amazing that actually you get that breadth during training. And it's so important because you need to understand what makes you tick because that's potentially what you're going to revolve your consultant career 
around. Almost have that perspective, but also realising that actually switching through so many different specialties, continuously learning different techniques, different ways to do things is a challenge in itself. The rotational aspects like you've already mentioned. So I know some rotations are actually as little as three months, which if that involves home life disruption as well, that is a potential challenge both at work and at home from that perspective. The FRCA has incredible dominance as one of the harder exams. I definitely think it needs due credence and I definitely put aside time. (laughs) You know, you've got it within you to get through it. It can feel challenging at the time. You're Again, you're not alone. There is yeah. support around you. And we've all had to be there. There's not one of us that's not got through the FRCA. Talk to people because you will realise that actually a lot of what you're feeling, many others before you or contemporaneous to you are feeling exactly the same. I think also anaesthesia training, again, it's why I really impress on life outside work because of the period that training encompasses there's lots of life changes that might happen at the same time and I think it's also just to realize that it's okay to have periods where you're going into work you're doing an excellent job at work and then you're going home and attending to duties that perhaps are more important in some ways then actually there are times when you can invest more and do that quality improvement project or research or the other exciting aspects that lie outside the clinical role. Now, I've definitely had periods like that where you just get the clinical really strongly under your belt, such as the novice period, and then other opportunities will come as and when, and you have to realise these opportunities will always be there. But you yourself have to look after yourself and make sure that actually you take care of that aspect. It's very easy to spread yourself very thin because there's a lot of enthusiastic people who are very motivated and want to take you under their wing to do X, Y, and Z. But you have to learn to pick your battles is the wrong phrase. I think pick your projects. Definitely. I think pick your projects, pick your mentors, pick those who you want to work with that align with the same values that you have. There's some days when I was like, gosh, I wish I could be back in training because what an exciting time. And actually, there's a real opportunity to really excel. I think that's the unique part of the training you are exposed to so much. It's very easy to get inspired at any point in that time. And also, I think you mentioned about exams. Obviously, that's a big looming shadow on the horizon. But actually, it's very easy to underestimate the power of saying, oh, I'm thinking about taking the exam. Saying that phrase in the coffee room, the amount of people who will say, okay, right, we'll sort this out. I'd mentioned that last year when I was sitting the final in yeah. the department I was in. And within 48 hours, a consultant had gone round, rallied a load of consultants and organized revision sessions for the next three weeks without me even asking. It was quite powerful and it just shows how supported you are. And I have to say, you know, if you're not in a department that's as proactive as the SAT, you can actually just set them up yourselves yeah. as well. I mean, we did that. When I was training as well, we had certain times where we would just, as a peer group, get together. They really became your exam bubble during that time and you motivated each other. I think that's the thing to remember in anaesthesia as a whole is it's, although clinically, particularly as a consultant, it could be a one-person job, obviously alongside your brilliant kind of ODP and the wider theatre and surgical team. But actually, as a specialty, if you step out of that you realise actually there's a lot of people around you who are championing you on and actually really supportive. And again, very similar. Like I had people when I was taking exams that I'm still to this day indebted to Mm. because of the time and generosity they showed. 
the advice that I'd give novices is the same as I'd give people taking the exam, like we've touched upon. Create a peer support group who are doing it with you so that you can learn from them. Learning as a group is far superior for myself as learning as one person. Two is make sure that you're giving yourself adequate breaks for your mental health so that you're then going and doing either physical exercise or something that relaxes you. Three is seeing the bigger picture. If you're coming in as a novice and expecting to be able to run an RSI day one, you haven't really, well, you've either done a four-month anaesthetic placement already or you're trying to expect too much of yourself. So expect small incremental improvements each day. If you look up at Everest straight away, you'll never climb it. It's far too big. What you need to do is just look at the wall that's in front of you and climb up that a little bit each time and chunk it off. Absolutely. And that's something that I tell novices or anaesthetists in training in general is always just look at the next step and look at what you need to grow within yourself to be able to like take that next step. Obviously, as an anaesthetist in training undergoing the novice period, it's to independently perform at anaesthetics, obviously within the right clinical context, really just looking to that next step. And I think you're absolutely right. Expectation management on yourself is also important and one aspect I do say, particularly to novices, is, you know, I'm a real big fan of reflecting at the end of the day the things that have gone well and the things that you've learned. And that's not necessarily always the clinical context. So it's not always the angle of the cannula as it goes in or which vein is best. Sometimes it's actually looking at the wider human factors things that you might have learned, like that dynamic between the anaesthetic team and the surgical team, which will, as you grow in seniority, will become more and more important. I like that thing you said at the end of each day, just two or three things you've learned, regardless of what they are. You have that every day. You're building up dozens and dozens of learning points that you probably wouldn't have realised. And I think it's really positive reinforcement that you are learning. Yeah. And, you know, no one's going to go from zero to giving an anaesthetic in 24 hours or two days, but it's actually really positive reinforcement to you that actually you're making great progress. So that's anaesthetics training. Are there any other challenges of being a doctor in anaesthetics that you'd like to touch upon? First thing to say, and I've already touched upon it, I think the pandemic really showed us the sharp edge of wellbeing issues within our specialty, but really brought forward the ways that we can look after ourselves. The one thing to say is also to re-emphasise this isn't about individual resilience. Yes, you are responsible for your own mental, emotional, physical health. No one else can do that for you, but to always have that in the context. I would say the things that, based on the literature and also personal experience, have really helped is the strength of peer-to-peer support, the strength of being quite reflective. I personally find it really, really helpful. So whether you want to write it down or whether you just want to go for a walk at the end of your day and actually, you know, remember all the good things that you've done, as well as that cannula that you didn't get in. (laughs) That level of reflectiveness is good. If you take each situation as just a learning experience and from that situation actually have one or two things that you're going to do next time that might be different or that you might try again, that also gives you a level of achievement and accomplishment from that perspective. Most of us like to feel like we're progressing. I definitely feel that actually going, okay, right, next time I'm going to try tweak this slightly and see how we go. I think that's really important. You can't emphasise life outside work and the perspective that that will bring to you too. Make sure that you do things you enjoy outside work. And again, it comes back to that self-awareness. It's not just 
work should be enjoyable. It should be that you're doing things that bring you energy, that you're enthusiastic about. The minute I hit upon peroptive care, I was like, wow, this is amazing. Like holistic care of the whole patient. And it appeals to like my slightly medical brain, as well as the kind of technical aspects of anesthesia as well. And this is where my unique perspective can perhaps be added. So really trying to understand what makes you tick, what motivates you. And remember that you can't be a master of everything. Just remember that the breadth of it is actually really interesting and you'll only see that breadth during training, but really trying to understand yourself and understanding the things that you're drawn to and the things that are actually going to give you longevity within your consultant career, because it's a long time. You need to really better understand yourself from that perspective. And that also reflects on other things that you're going to do outside work for yourself what energizes you what makes you tick what gives you that level of endurance one of the other things that we've mentioned there was some literature that came out in 2017 that we're going to link into the bio the anaesthetists cite their own cool work about 60 to 70 percent said that it had the negative effects and being able to optimize yourself for an on-call can really help as well. Are there any ways that you will do that or that you recommend that your trainees do that in practice? Yeah. The one thing is to say that particularly if you're in a busy acute hospital, to remember that on-calls are going to be demanding. need to prepare for that, but also prepare for the aftermath of that as well. So we are all human and there's a good aspect to that. But making sure that you get enough rest beforehand, not overloading your day the day after so that rest is so important. And that means also setting up life so that that it enables you to have that rest before and afterwards as well. And if you've had anything challenging during that time to make sure that, you know, speak to someone about it in a relatively short period of time. I know something that really helps me is, you know, plan some fun things to do after a stretch of encore so that you've got something to look forward to and you've got this dedicated section of your week you're like okay i've got this encore series of encores to get through but actually after that i've got this to look forward to and that doesn't have to be expensive or fancy it could just be a walk in the park or time with family i know for me personally i still do it do it to this day is have that scheduled time after a time of busyness where you know that you're going to decompress So lots of ways that we can do this. And I know like Fight Fatigue has done a huge amount of work Mm -hmm. and that's work that the college and the association have worked very closely together. We're going to link those resources. But if I could get one message out there, it's rest is not a bad thing. It's actually mandatory. Most of us find rest really challenging sometimes, but it's absolutely 100% necessary as is sleep. It's needed. So I think there's a few facts that we'll quickly get across. One of the thought leaders is a sleep consultant at the Evelina called Michael Farquhar, who I actually worked as an SHO under. And he was very inspirational for getting across that message that if you've been up for 18 hours, you are at the drink drive reaction speed. So therefore, fatigue has quite a big impact on your mental and physical state. If you are driving after a night shift, you are double the risk of road traffic accidents. And in one of the papers that were also linked in 2017, a survey of trainees, 57% said that they had had a near miss. And you've got to look after yourself and optimise yourself in terms of those rests. And what we will do 
his LinkedIn, Michael Farquhar's YouTube presentation, along with he's written an article on the BMJ of how to optimise yourself for shifts. It's probably one of the best things I've read as a doctor to help reduce my risks that I'm taking, both enduring night shifts of my short-term health in terms of driving and also my long-term health and how I optimise myself for my patients. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, unfortunately, you know, some of us have been in those situations where a department is dealing with a death after an on-call shift. And it's one of the most harrowing things because it's, and you have to remember that you yourself are really important. All of us want you to look after yourself, taking on board some of those points that you've already mentioned. And just simple things like hydration, Mm. making sure you're eating well. Please, please just look after yourself. Because I had a near miss driving back after a set of night shifts, nearly crashed on the way home. I found that quite upsetting. Since then, I will only, when I'm doing night shifts, if the drive is over 20 minutes, I'll either sleep after or I'll get accommodation. It's a difficult thing to arrange, but I would reach out to those people who are thinking if they're going over a 45-minute drive, your risk of road traffic accidents starts really going up. So have a real think about that. Yeah. We've talked about looking after yourself after the on-call but also during the on-call it can be quite a challenge particularly coming from medical jobs or A&E or ACCS where you're constantly on the go for the whole shift in anaesthetics there can be very stop start you can have a sudden flurry of work and then nothing or you can have nothing for several hours and then right when you're at your physiological low point at sort of 3 or 4 a.m in the morning you're suddenly just busy non-stop for five mm-hmm. hours and at first I remember feeling a bit guilty about taking a break I was like running around actively looking to help colleagues and then if there wasn't anything to do, I'd just be sat at a computer thinking I should probably try and do something and read something, but nothing would go in. Yeah. So having that mindset shift of you need to look, take your breaks when you're on call as well. Feed yourself, water yourself. Don't eat horrible things, which I'm still bad at on night shifts. Eat healthily. Take your rest, even if it's just sitting down. Well, it's quite interesting you say that about the eating yourself. Your body between midnight and six isn't really meant to consume calories. You're in a pro-inflammatory state. Exactly. It's that sort of night shift pattern work of eating that Michael Farquhar, he talks through that. We do have an increased risk of diabetes and stroke from working night shifts. So that's one of the ways you can try and decrease your risk. I simply think about it as the gremlin rule. Don't feed after midnight. Well, that would be different for different people. It'll be but different, yeah. it, uh, We're not giving a one-stop advice. No. We're just saying have a think about it and how you can minimise it. If you're eating, if there's been a, a big event and you've needed to get a pizza in for everyone, that's okay. But if you're thinking about making lifestyle changes, maybe not doing that every shift. It's interesting what you just said about culturally that we do want to always help. It's also understanding when you're overextending your abilities, especially during busy night shifts. So fundamentally, you're there to keep the patients within your service and your remit safe. I just wanted to reference an article. So the American Society of Anesthesiologists have done a huge amount in well-being. It's excellent work led by two colleagues. So Amy Vincent, who's based at Harvard, and Gina Sinski, who's based at the University of San Francisco. They put out a paper actually in 2022 and it was entitled the wicked problem of physician well-being and it just goes through some of those like very cultural inherent things that are in all of us Mm. is that yes we feel sometimes guilty for taking a rest but actually for your patient that is the best thing for you to do because that recharges you and it means that actually you can provide the level of patient care that is safe. It's interesting hearing you speak about that because it just reminded me of that particular paper. Again, I can give you a link to it. 
you were saying about some of the data. So also in 2017, the college did a welfare morale survey and found that 85% of anaesthetists in training were at high risk of burnout. I think it's just to realise that these issues are inherent in our specialty. So therefore, learning how you on an individual level, but also, you know, how you can support your department to institute changes that will support those of us within it is also just a really important aspect of being a professional within this specialty. At my most pessimistic of times, I think well-being, the word can get bandied around a lot, almost as a buzzword, and then action doesn't necessarily stem from it. I think anaesthetics is one of the few specialties where I've seen there is active shift where it is being pushed, but I think it's important not to become disengaged with it. It is there. There will be waves of enthusiasm as time goes on, but there is always going to be something set up. These aren't soft things. These are optimising yourself for the performance for your patients. You wouldn't get Roger Federer playing on centre court 4am is a phrase I've heard before. You wouldn't because he wouldn't be able to optimise his performance. But we are on at 4am in recess with difficult decisions to make in seconds, minutes and therefore working out ways that you can optimise your physical, mental health is so important. I had the fortune of presenting at the College Tutors meeting at this Novpod and one of the things that came up was the impact on people's well-being if we're not inclusive as a specialty. What would you say to that and the impact of inclusivity Inclusivity is fundamental to well-being. If I could just give you some statistics, and this is just outside medical literature, that kind of social exclusion, 41% of people can report poor mental health when left out of kind of social gatherings or networking opportunities. We've got 49% of people reporting poor mental health when there's incorrect assumptions made about them. And 47% report poor mental health when they feel like they're ignored at work or their needs aren't met. And we also know from the college report the importance of being valued at work. So inclusivity is fundamental. There's two aspects to this. I try not to speak from personal experience, only because I generally you want to do what's best for the specialty overall. But I've clearly got some experience in this. And one thing that spoke about recently at the college tutors meeting is the fact that I don't really speak openly until the pandemic and diversity and inclusivity became more obvious. That prompted me to be more open about the fact that I am Sri Lankan Tamil and I'm Hindu and I'm from a migrant background. And the reason I speak about that is not so much to speak of myself, but I hope that that enables me to be relatable to what we know is a significant amount of our international workforce. One fundamental take home message about inclusivity, I would say, you know, take the opportunity to really understand what it's like to be in another's shoes. And that's diversity across a broad spectrum. So not just ethnicity and race, which is perhaps where I personally have experience, but also looking at neurodiversity, looking at physical disability. So looking at the whole spectrum, the all seven protected characteristics. And one aspect that I find myself repeating is, you know, ask, don't assume. I have a great love of learning about people. I think people's life stories are absolutely fascinating. Learn about your colleagues, learn perhaps their challenges that they've been through, and that might give you more scope into how they can feel more included at work. 
that's really actually affected my well-being is getting to know my ODPs a lot better and their life journey and story and then it feels that we're a stronger team because of that and yeah. that we then have each other's backs a bit more yeah so, absolutely. absolutely that also leads us on to some extra support that the college has set up recently that you've been leading on so just to say the college have a long involvement in well-being as do the association of anaesthetists what became very evident after the pandemic is that there's a number of organizations so nhs england the gmc obviously the brilliant work the association are doing there's lots of pockets of excellent work and we just wanted to try and bring that together so we set up a six-month task and finish group last year just to try and understand where we can collaborate where we can signpost and where we can do some novel work ourselves. And one of the outputs of that was that it became evident that there needs to be a hub where all the wellbeing resources from all organisations can come to. That was released last week, and we can put a link to it on this podcast. But what I particularly was quite adamant about was that we have a section that regardless of what level of seniority you are, so whether you're a novice anaesthetist in training or all stages of career, that there's a hub that you can go to and actually access help right now. So that has resources to the BMA's confidential lines, and that's irrespective of whether you're a BMA member or not. It has NHS confidential lines, Practitioners Help, which is an excellent organisation, which has supported many, many anaesthetists and also kind of signposting to the association's work on this. So in particular, but not exclusively, I wanted to highlight that aspect of the hub, but it also has a number of different resources for more kind of, you know, medium to long-term help. But just to say, again, to emphasise you're not alone, and there is there are confidential lines out there if you don't feel that you've got the level of peer support to kind of support you through it. Well, it's creating an area of psychological safety, isn't it? So yeah. where you can debrief without the... One of the previous projects I've been involved in, we were looking at barriers, and one of the barriers for especially senior trainees is that you will be asking for a job somewhere, or maybe for novices is that you'll link in. But I'd still encourage that these people are trained, educational supervisors are trained to pick up these issues and deal with them. So do go and speak to them, because yeah. they will have solutions. This is just an alternative way that people can link into support. And post-COVID and post-exams, I went and spoke to someone about burnout and it really helps. So I would advocate if you're thinking, do should I speak to someone? Yeah. The fact you've thought about it, you probably should. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I wanted to pick up your point there on how you think that you'll be perceived. I think that's another aspect. So I have a line that we need to... I always have a line that we need to normalise the abnormal Hmm. rather than the norm being that actually you're abnormal if you react to these situations or if you are challenged by some of the aspects that you see. It's really bringing that humanness to that anaesthesia. And it's certainly something at the college that we're working hard to do from that perspective. But it's to realise that actually we're all just human. And though we may have done X, Y and Z actually we've been in your shoes please do just talk and you'll realize how normal your experiences are within the context of the specialty within your working 
All of us can name those people, can't they? I can name the person, I won't, because I won't embarrass them, but I can name <laughs> the person during my novice period who was just a fantastic influence. Yeah. But you never forget those people. That's a real treasure within anaesthesia is that actually most of us are able to speak from the heart. We're able to actually be human and like reassure you that actually what you've gone through is nothing that we perhaps haven't gone through ourselves or no colleagues that have gone through. But please do it early because... Another aspect, and I say this as someone who's seen it, is absolutely heartbreaking to see the sharp end of that, which is suicide, death yeah. Yeah. of our colleagues. Just speak up, speak to someone, because people are there to genuinely help you. For the novice those listening for well-being and then those who are in the world of anaesthetics who have tuned in as well, what would you want them to take away from this conversation? I think my first takeaway would be welcome to a very exciting, supportive, innovative specialty, but it definitely comes with its challenges, which we've spoken about in this podcast. And to go in eyes wide open from that perspective and just not be too hard on yourself, be kind to yourself. I think the other aspect was that whilst I'm not advocate of individual resilience and I emphasize again it's not about individual resilience but work out what works for you and it's going to be on a very individual level so what makes someone energized or makes them tick may not be what helps you so really prioritize how much sleep do you need what do you need to do with your nutrition and your physical health but also realize that that's one aspect and actually ultimately for those of us within well-being actually kind of look for ways to support others as well uh, to take away would be for shift work is would you let someone drink drive the answer is going to be no resounding so therefore if someone's been up for 18 hours and you know they haven't slept do a positive challenge and say i'm sorry i think you should go and rest before you step in the car or is there an alternative accommodation that you can yep. have and you can do that in a very kind and compassionate way because ultimately you're coming from a good place yeah you're you're you want to look after your colleagues and there are ways that you can do that that are positive and supportive yeah rather than aggressively you're not driving <laughs> yeah, 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 i'm taking your keys away so i'd like this conversation to be a jump off point the resources that we've mentioned are rich they're full of detail and as ramai has just mentioned they will need to be an individualistic reflection what works for you and so have a look have a read work out what works for you in terms of optimizing yourself for your well-being don't be afraid to reach out for support yeah i've just thought of an analogy for anesthetics and the challenges go on the grass is very very green in anesthetics but the weather is very british thanks again to ramai for donating her time and being a fantastic guest member of this episode so we've touched upon a lot in this episode if you feel that you're personally affected and that you wanted to go and have a look about how you could talk to someone please go and have a look at the rcoa wellbeing hub for the links we've put in there we've also got another link in the bio to the novice guide along with the wellbeing support that resources that the association have provided along with the resources that we mentioned with Dr. Michael Farquhar and the paper that Ramai mentioned of the wicked problem of the physician well-being. I hope that's been a useful conversation between Ramai, Duncan and myself. 
please share with colleagues if you feel that they could benefit from it. And remember that your well-being is vitally important to your health, happiness and longevity. So please look after it. We'll see you in the next episode, which is Life After the IAC, the season finale with Dr Fiona Donald, the President of the Royal College. Bye for now.